Morning, church. Great to be back with you. If you're new or visiting, I'm Ross. I show up every now and then when Alistair invites me, and I'm always delighted to, uh, to preach here. My day job is as Dean of St. Andrew's Hall, which is the Presbyterian College at the University of British Columbia. Not this campus, the other campus. Uh, and really uh, delighted to look at this theme of prayer today. When I was looking uh, through scripture and trying to decide, Alistair said it would be great when you visit in August if you could have a look at the Lord's Prayer, and preferably from Luke's Gospel. And it's always nice as a guest preacher when someone suggests the scripture. So uh, what a joy to uh, sit, to pray, to discern, uh, to listen uh, to the Lord speaking on our behalf, and now to report in to you this morning that indeed there is a word from the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this time. May we feel you at work in this space. We bring our whole selves to worship this morning. Those parts that we are proud of, that we are excited to tell others about. Those parts that are aching and that are hard. However we come into worship today, oh God, would you meet us here? Would you minister to us through the gospel and through the active presence of the Holy Spirit? Would you remind us that we are chosen, we are beloved, we are yours, no matter what. And so we pray this prayer in confidence, for we pray it in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So summer, I don't know how your summer has been. My summer has been a staycation summer. When asked, uh, my wife and I were at a dinner party the other night, uh, and we both said to the uh, question, how was your summer? We said, meh, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it is what it is. There's something about summer that even if it's been kind of a meh summer, um, my mind goes back to earlier summers. I don't know about you. Do you ever think about childhood, like your childhood summers when the weather gets warm? And I spent most of my childhood summers at our family cottage. I grew up in the holy land of Manitoba. If you're not from the prairies, you don't get it. But trust me, there is no greater place than the prairies, but I live here now, so you can work that out for yourself. <laughs> a lot of folks in Winnipeg have a cottage because, uh, brace yourselves, you can actually afford a home in Winnipeg. It's amazing. And you usually, even like middle to lower middle uh, income, you can like buy some sort of cabin or cottage. Uh, ours was just over the border in northwestern Ontario, a uh, beautiful lake of the woods outside of Kenora. And I was thinking about um, just how much uh, my childhood summers were different uh, than right now, including in technology. Uh, I'm so old, you can see the gray hair on the side, uh, which the lights kindly illuminate even more so, um, that at our cottage, we had a phone but it wasn't even our own phone. Now, if you're a millennial or a Gen Z, you're gonna be like, what? So we had what was called a party line. Anyone know what a party line is? Okay, oh, I'm encouraged, okay. So um, a, a party line, for those who don't know, is at the cottage, I would pick up the phone, and if you hear someone else at that time speaking, you have to put it down. Why? Because it's your neighbor talking, or one of several neighbors, Everyone shared the same telephone line. And while it was kind of awkward, it was awesome on those rare rainy days when you were stuck inside 
because you could eavesdrop on your neighbors. And it was fascinating. It was a wonderful way to learn all that was going on in the lives of the families around uh, Woodchuck Bay. Uh, I was thinking about how technology has advanced over the years. Uh, in uh, the excellent book, The End of Absence, Vancouver journalist and author Michael Harris tells a, a funny story of his nephew coming over to visit his, I think it's a Yale town condo where he lives. And on his coffee table, he had a paper copy of Time magazine. I know, old school, paper copy, right? And his nephew, who is like three, four years old, wanders into his uncle's condo, goes straight to the coffee table, sees the Time magazine, and immediately starts doing this. He thinks it's an iPad, right? It's the only form of technology he's familiar with. He never, Michael writes, held an actual paper magazine or journal in his hands. He uses that story as a, a launching pad to describe some of us who are older as digital immigrants. You've heard this expression before, no doubt. That is, there are some of us in the room who actually remember what the world was like before the internet. Imagine. Isn't that shocking? And as I was thinking this week about the evolution of technology and communication, I was thinking about how often in the church we talk about prayer as communication, as conversation, right? Uh, I've done it as a preacher before. I've heard it in many churches where we're encouraged to pray, and people say things like, it's easy. Talk to God just like you're talking to a good friend. And in some ways, that's true, but I actually think it's more difficult than it first appears. I think we actually have to learn how to be in the presence of God in order to have that communication. In some ways, we may be digital immigrants, some of us in this room, but as we continue to follow Jesus in an increasingly secular society, we're not only digital immigrants, some of us in this room, I think all of us are what I would call doxological immigrants. The way in which we praise God has moved and shifted over the years. When I think about growing up in Winnipeg, everyone, and I mean everyone in my elementary school class, went to church, right? There were the Anglicans, the Uniteds, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Roman Catholics, the Ukrainian Catholics, and then after that, everyone else was Mennonite. Why? because it's Winnipeg, right? It's like everyone's Mennonite there. And everyone had this sense of church going, but we know that's not the case in increasingly secular Canada, especially here in downtown Vancouver. So even simple practices of faith like prayer, we need to work harder at as a Christian community and equipping people for what once used to be a very natural thing. It's conversation, just like talking with your friend. But the Christian church has always learned that we need to equip people for these basic practices. We use fancy language like catechesis, but really it's about training or preparation for the Christian life. It's really cool and it's totally worth Googling later because it's all available online. The early church had an intro to Christianity course. This is like the pre-Alpha Alpha course and it was called the Didache. It was written around 100 AD, 
And it's not all that long, but it was basically a really clever way in house churches throughout the Roman Empire for people to receive it and say, okay, train people to follow Jesus using this. And chapter 8 is entitled On Fasting and Prayer. And it will not surprise you that the way in which early Christians, our ancestors in the faith, learned how to pray was using, guess the model, the Lord's Prayer. And the short version that we have today in Luke's Gospel. So there's this sense in which we need to be equipped to learn how to pray. That's part of the job of the Christian community. And I wonder, who taught you how to pray? Even hearing that question, is there a face that comes to mind? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a, a grandparent, a Sunday school teacher, a camp counselor, pastor. That's if you grew up in the church, which is increasingly rare in our times. If you're an adult convert, we're especially pleased to have you in the church. That is the future, I think, of the church in Canada. And so I know here at St. Peter's Fireside, this Christian community works really hard, especially through the small group ministries that are beginning again this fall. Can I hear the cheer? Yeah. So the cheer comes from this side more, I understand. Okay. So in the small group ministries, that's really where you learn how to pray. Your small group ministries, I remember years ago um, having Roger Revel come into my class and, oh, I know, oh, sad moment, Roger. We all love Roger. His email's still up on that slide. Did you notice that? Someone needs to change that. That's old. Yeah. And so oh, you're keeping it on purpose. Okay. If you don't know who Roger is, we love Roger, and a former pastor, now bright Oxford guy. Okay, uh, and, uh, and so uh, your small groups, I remember being impressed by the model here, and Roger was saying part of it was helping to equip people to learn how to pray. In other words, as Christians today in Vancouver, we can't take for granted that you can say something like, prayer is easy, it's like a conversation with a friend. It is a Christian practice that is learned that you experiment with, and that you continue to build on as you follow Jesus. Uh, former Dean of St. Andrew's Hall, one of my heroes and a legendary Canadian preacher, uh, Stephen Ferris, now retired in Toronto, in one of his books, uh, and this was years ago, but he could see the trend of secularization, he challenged the reader, and I challenged my own students with this. Stephen Ferris said that Christians today make three strange claims, like really weird, like awkward claims that when you're churchy and in the church, you just take for granted. Are you ready for them? The first strange claim that Christians make, Stephen Ferris says, is that God speaks to us. Now we're in church, right? We're worshiping God, and so that's not strange to us. But I say to my students, the next time you're on TransLink, the next time you're on the 99B line coming to campus at UBC, and it's crowded, turn to someone beside you and say, God speaks to me, right? Can you imagine what would happen? You will have that whole row of seats to yourself, right? <laughs> it's an odd, it's a very strange claim. And the second claim pushes it further, that God not only speaks to us and we to God through prayer, but God speaks to us through the Bible. That's also a very strange claim that this ancient text, this book that indigo chapters you can usually get on sale, right, is the way in which God communicates truth to us and to the wider world. 
That's a strange claim. And the third claim is that God speaks to us through preaching, through the word preached. Now, I would extend that to basically say through proclamation or Christian witness, because I think when we're out in the world, our words, our actions, our character and behavior uh, also communicate God's gospel. These are strange claims that are made. I say this all by way of preamble, and you think, oh no, Ross, how long is your sermon? Don't worry, I'm getting there. Just because when we talk about prayer in church, we can often be even a little flippant about it. Like, oh yeah, it's what we do. But it's a practice that's learned over time, and I want to give you exhibit A, because even if we're familiar with prayer, have a look at the scripture reading today. Now, these are Jewish men who have been following their rabbi for years, and they didn't just learn to pray when they met Jesus. Raised in the Galilee, they would have at least gone to synagogue for a short while and memorized the first five books of the Bible. Awesome. And we think we're asking a lot of Sunday school today, right? First five books of the Bible, and then it would be kind of like an American Idol or Canadian Idol competition. There was a selection that was made. I always feel bad for the ones that are sent home early. Well, those would be the disciples. They were cut early, and they're like, yeah, you're not bright enough. What's your dad? He's a carpenter. Okay, you go be a carpenter. What's your dad? He's a fisherman. Yeah, you go be a fisherman. Whatever, right? And then the best and the brightest would carry on, and only a handful of them would become a, a rabbi at some point. But even in that early synagogue education, they learned how to pray most twice a day, devout three times a day. And then they get called up. They get called back to the life of discipleship by Rabbi Jesus. And they've had years with him now. And so they know how to pray, but there is something about the way Jesus prays that leads them then to ask for more. And there are, are three things that I want us to kind of focus on today in this reading. There's the parable that follows, and, and we don't have time to get into that today, so we're just going to look at the initial teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, if your Bible app is open and that kind of thing, uh, you can have a look. I, I'm just so interested in the first line. Um, Jason Biasi, my uh, dear friend on faculty who's sadly leaving us for Toronto, single tier, I'm going to miss him so much, um, he, always, he always says, look for the weird in Scripture. It's there for a reason. And so maybe this isn't weird, but we know that, that Scripture is God's truth. It's God-breathed, right, and inspired. But we also know that it was spoken truth and then eventually written down into the form we have translated multiple times, etc., etc. And so all that to say, when there are things that are left in there, like a stone on a pathway, you, just, you don't trip over, but you just kind of catch your toe on, pay attention. Wonder why it's there. Just look at that first verse. One day Jesus was praying. It could have stopped there. Could have been edited out over the years. But instead it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. I kept coming back to that phrase this week. I was interested in a certain place. Why would they have recorded that? My, my hunch is, and you're entirely allowed to disagree with the preacher, but my hunch is because Jesus had a practice of prayer. 
We know in other parts of the Gospels that he retreats, right? Uh, almost suggesting our Lord and Savior has introvert qualities, right? He needed to retreat from the crowds. For those of us who are extroverts, uh, it's hard to imagine that people need a break from people, but some do. Uh, and so he retreats from the crowds in order to commune with the Father and to pray. But this language of a certain place suggests that the disciples observed in their rabbi's prayer life a, a habit, a practice, a, a routine of creating a place for prayer. So my first question, my first point, my first challenge is, do you have a certain place for prayer? I was visiting uh, earlier this summer uh, some very good friends of mine, Jack and Priscilla. They teach at Perkins School of Theology, which is at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It was so unbelievably hot, I don't ever want to go back. Uh, and, uh, but they're the sweetest people in the world, and it's a lovely campus. Uh, they are brave. Uh, in their 60s, they have moved into an undergraduate residence in order to be a pastoral presence uh, to like first and second year undergrads at Southern Methodist University. I would not touch that to save my life, right? <laughs> the upside is they have a lovely patio where they can uh, engage in uh, faith talk with folks and that kind of thing, and a three bedroom apartment in this residence. Uh, their kids are growing up, moved out, so they have spare room, and they were showing me how they've turned one of the guest bedrooms into their prayer room. And it is their certain place, a place that they go separately every day to read scripture, to come before the Father in prayer, and to seek guidance. And I was both amazed and envious of their certain place. I need to get the kids to move out of the house, to have a spare bedroom. But I like that certain place. Now, we're in downtown Vancouver. Good luck if you even have an apartment or a condo to yourself but you can still create a certain place in your home for prayer. So the first thing I wanna say is where is your certain place for prayer? Because the fact that Jesus had a certain place was noteworthy for his disciples. And that led, I think in part, to the second point, and that is the courage of this one disciple to ask a question, right? You know, as an educator, you hear the phrase, there are no stupid questions. Let me just say that's a questionable proposition, right? Uh, there are some questions that really shouldn't be asked. But we all know that there are those moments where you're in a learning environment where you think, does everyone really get this? Is it really just me? And you know it's not. And you're the brave person that puts up your hand and says, hold on a second. I, I don't understand what's going on here. Can you go back and explain that? You know that feeling either if you've had the courage to ask the question or if you're one of the people in the room thinking, I'm so glad someone asked that because I have no idea what's going on right now, right? So watch the courage of this one disciple. I love this so much. And so when he finished praying, that is, when Jesus finished praying, one of his disciples, we don't even know who, just one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us, not teach me, right? So he, he had a hunch, maybe they were talking, 
right, when Jesus was away, how does he pray that way? What is it? We should ask him. No, don't ask him. Let's pretend like we know, right? Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said, not to the one disciple, right? He said, to them. So here's another challenge. Do we ask enough questions? I know I just said there are some silly questions or whatever. But in church, do we ask the questions that need to be asked? My worry in a lot of churches that I guess preach in is there's almost no small group ministry that goes along with Sunday worship. I think one of the things that COVID taught us was that we've asked too much of Sunday mornings. We've tried to cram too much as churches into Sunday mornings. That's not the story of St. Peter's Fireside. From your very beginning, you have always worked hard at building community throughout the week, community of prayer and service. Uh, you know, I was in December, I was visiting Jacob's Well uh, one night down the downtown east side, and who was there making grilled cheese sandwiches? A team from St. Pete's, right? So you have this commitment to developing a thicker, more porous life together. But it's also important, even though you have those connections, to continue to be a place where you can ask questions. So do you ask the questions, the deep, burning questions of your faith? in this church? Because I know this is a church where you can ask those questions. That's a second challenge that comes out of our scripture reading today. And then Jesus responds, and we're only going to look at the four verses. Now, this is a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, and it can be a little confusing if you're a new Christian, like, why are there different versions? And I totally get that. And you'll learn as you hang in this community longer that the Gospels were written to different communities. In some ways, it's a bit you know, flippant, but you could almost say the Gospels are like biographies of Jesus, and, uh, and they're written for different uh, audiences or readers. And so Matthew's Gospel, likely kind of an urban Jewish, maybe even on the wealthier side community. Luke's Gospel, primarily Gentile, not as wealthy. And so he's shortened it up here to keep it really pithy. And I'm glad for that, because I was challenged sitting with the actual prayer itself, the third point that we're going to look at this morning. Father, hallowed be your name. So when they asked Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Obviously, you are so tight with the Father. We want that. And Jesus says, well, just begin praying to God as I do. Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, God is called Father in the Old Testament. That's awesome. But the the intimacy that Jesus models with the Father is quite unique here. And Jesus is saying, well, you can have that too. You can have that kind of intimacy with God. And you pray to God, and you address God, and you hallow, you bless, you make holy, you sanctify. You have a sense in which this is not someone just saying, Oh God, as they are walking down the street and they stumble or something like this. This is entering into a, a holy conversation with the one who created you and who loves you so deeply. Then the next part is your kingdom come. This part, I kept tripping over again and again this week. I found this phrase, I don't know why this week, really challenging to me. Your kingdom come. My role as a professor is in what's called missiology. That's a fancy cocktail party word for someone who geeks out on mission and how it works. 
And another missiologist, Canadian-born, but he now lives in Chicago, is named David Fitch. And David Fitch, in his book, Faithful Presence, spends a lot of time on the practice of what he calls kingdom prayer. That's this line from the Lord's Prayer. And the more that I read David Fitch this week on this, and the more that I kind of reflected on kingdom prayer, the more I got worried about how often I'm in churches where prayers are essentially laundry lists for people's ailments. You know what I'm saying? Like basically, we are to pray for those who are ill, full stop, don't hear anything different. But kingdom prayer is front-loaded. Our needs come after this in the Lord's Prayer. So are our prayers big enough? Are they selfless enough? Are they directed towards what God wants before we ask for what we need? We are sinners. We know that. Full stop. Scripture is clear, and our life experience is clear. I often try and describe uh, sin as uh, that one uh, shopping cart you get, at, like save on with the stuck wheel. Have you ever had that one? And it keeps pulling you into like the craft dinner display. It's terrible, right? <laughs> sin always pulls us away from God's intention. And so kingdom prayer, according to David Fitch, resets our laundry list prayers, and first, we are aligned, we go straight with what God wants, God's vision. It's a challenge, it's a challenge for me as a preacher, kingdom prayer. Give us each our daily bread. Too much of this can be made. Usually preachers will say things like, that means don't ask for the Maserati, you know, and I know, and it's because we're always kind of warding off prosperity gospel. But this week, as I was you know, meditating on this line, to me, it, it kept coming back as I, was, as I was thinking about daily bread. It is just that basic provision. We always need more. We always want more, that kind of thing. But once we're in alignment with what God wants for this world, God's vision of peace and justice and reconciliation, then what we need, chances are, is much less than we normally think that we need. Just daily bread, just provision. And then forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. Now is the time where we come before God and we tell God what we desperately need. He wants to know what we need. He wants to give us what we are hungering for. But again, we have to be in alignment with kingdom vision. And the forgiveness that flows first comes from God. And any forgiveness that we have to offer to any other person who has wronged us first comes from God that flows through us, for we are all in need of forgiveness. So friends, as you're going through your week and you're mulling over this morning's service, I want to challenge you with those three things. First of all, where is your certain place for prayer? And if you don't have one, wouldn't it be cool if this week you create one? That's important. Second, Jesus wants us to ask big questions. And chances are in church or in small group ministries, if you ask it, someone else is wanting to ask it as well. So you're being brave for someone else. Number three, think of the both simplicity and the challenge of the Lord's Prayer. To come before God as our Father, 
to know him in that intimate and loving way that he loves us. And by doing so, to direct first, let that be a challenge, kingdom prayer this week, that we're aligned with God. This prayer has shaped ancestors who now reside in the communion of saints, generation after generation. And this prayer continues to shape our lives. I remember years ago as a congregational pastor, there was a a new member of our church. And uh, not a member, just a visitor. She was there a couple of Sundays, and I greeted her at the door and that kind of thing. By Sunday three, I thought, oh, I guess she's sticking around. Uh, And I said, hey, let's grab some coffee. I'd love to hear your story. So we did that week. And she said, yeah, it's really great to be back in church. She said, look, I was, I was raised in church and Sunday school, and uh, pastors know this. Then there's always this awkward part where they kind of talk about how they wandered from church. Trust me, we actually don't judge people when they wander from church. It's like, okay, I get it. That's fine. I said, but you're back. It's great to have you back in, in any Christian community. Um, so the obvious question is, why? What's changed or what happened? She said, actually, I was in hospital recently. She was a younger woman, and she didn't get into details. She said, it wasn't anything serious, but uh, I was in for observation overnight. And she said, it was awful. She said, I, just, oh, I don't like being in hospitals. And it was a four-person room, and you know the, the little sheet pulled across for privacy hardly works, right? And you can hear all the other conversations going on. And she said, I was lying there just counting the hours until I'd be discharged and could get out of there. But the person in the bed on the other side of the curtain was not doing well. Nurses and doctors coming in, and she could have, uh, she had a sense of alarm that things were not going to end well eventually in the bed beside her. Family came in, and she eavesdropped. How could she not on the conversations they were having? And they were goodbye conversations. And then, she said, another character entered the room, and it was the chaplain. The chaplain was called by the family, and she listened, and she heard the comfort that the chaplain gave the family, the scripture that he read, and then, at that point, uh, he led them in prayer. And as he was praying for this person who was moving from this world and into God's hands, he ended his prayer with the Lord's Prayer. And she said, as he started saying the Lord's Prayer, I started saying it out loud in my hospital room, in my bed. And she said, even though I was all alone in that hospital bed and the person beside me was in far worse shape, just by calling this prayer to mind, by gracing it on my lips from childhood, I felt God's presence. He's there. And I realized he's always been there. May it be so for us in our prayer life as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.